Welcome to BC Polytalk. I'm Daniel Fontaine, your co-host. And I'm Bill Tillman, your other co-host. Today on the show, we're going to have Jazz Johal. Jazz Johal is the ICBC critic, member of the BC Liberal Caucus, as well as the MLA for Richmond, Queensboro. So Bill and I are going to be talking to Jazz today about a number of topics. What's on uh, your agenda? Well, obviously, we want to know what's going on in the Green Party. And is that going to mean an election in 2020? We've talked about that before. And things keep developing as we go along. So that's a big question. But there's other things. Jazz is ICBC critic. He's uh, dealing with the so-called uh, dumpster fire of ICBC uh, on the half of the BC Liberals. And he's got a lot of thoughts about the energy industry and the transition from fossil fuels because he spent a lot of time with the LNG industry before he went into politics. Yeah, Jazz has a lot of uh, background in energy, so that's definitely going to be an area of, of interest for him. Uh, I think you said ride-sharing. I can't remember. Did I you, did not. You did not, but, but, we, but I'm, I will. <laughs> well, I, I want to ask him about ride-sharing because we see him a lot on, on Global News and, mm -hmm. uh, and other media outlets uh, just hammering away at the government in terms of, of ride-sharing. So I'm definitely going to be looking for that. And I intend to ask him whether or not he's a Star Wars fan and find out whether or not he saw the final episode. So I'm throwing in the really tough questions, Bill. I think it'll be fascinating. Sure will. Joining us now is Jazz Johal. He's the MLA for BC Liberals in Richmond, Queensboro, ICBC critic, former global TV reporter, former LNG guy. Jazz, welcome to the show. Good to be here. I'm usually used to asking you guys the questions. <laughs> you have asked so, those questions. Tables right. are turned. Well, the tables guys. are turned at last. So this, the tables have turned. <laughs> so good. fire away, gentlemen. Uh, that's good. <laughs> well, here's our first question. Yeah. Are we going to have an election in 2020? We've seen Andrew yeah. Weaver go through the longest goodbye and different points in time, uh, he's gone from being the leader to being a green MLA, and now he's no longer even a green, quit the party, yeah. uh, sitting as an independent. Is he going to take a walk in the snow and walk out the door? You know, I don't know that answer. But what I can tell you is we are assuming there could be an election called any time right now. I personally don't think it's going to happen this year. I think the NDP is uh, in their mandate. Uh, they're doing their thing. Uh, it's been a 16-year-long wait. And to jeopardize that and roll the dice, I still think uh, the Premier wants to wait. Uh, but everything isn't in his hands. As he said in his end-of-the-year interview with many media outlets that, uh, uh, you know, work as if this is your last day. Mm -hmm. And I think they're doing that. Um, so I think it's not in his hands. Um, it is a soap opera over there some days because mm. you just don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, it can take one person who gets sick. It can be take uh, one person who misses a flight sometimes. And there's been times they've been very close to losing votes as well. Um, so it's a, you know, for me as a journalist, a former journalist, sort of being in the inside and guards, being in that legislature, it's fascinating to watch. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of the journalists always ask me in the press gallery, what do you think? I go, and it's, it, is, it is an amazing um, opportunity to be there, incredible privilege. Um, but with what's going on right now, it's very unique. But I personally don't think there's going to be an election this year at this particular point, but I could be proven wrong just depending on circumstances. Yeah. So Jess, who do you think uh, in the context of this leadership race, as Bill said, uh, we've, it's taken a long time for uh, Andrew Weaver to uh, step aside. But now we have a situation where the leader, or the former leader, uh, has said that he'd prefer to have somebody from the metro Vancouver area, from the mainland, mm -hmm. which kind of is a bit of a snub, I would think, to his caucus, former caucus mate now, Sonia Forstenow. Mm -hmm. You have Sonia over there, who I'm assuming is getting prepped to announce any day that she's running for leadership. You have other names being bantied about. What, what you, you get to see the dynamic in, when the doors are closed in the legislature. Yeah. What happened to that caucus that we thought was so that kind of close and tight and working well together? 
to suddenly appear publicly anyways to be imploding. Events, dear boy, events, <laughs> as it says in politics. Look, it can be, you can have a 40-person caucus or a three-person caucus. There is going to be personalities and views and perceptions. Uh, and that is the reality of politics. And I'm sure they have robust conversation as we do with a much larger caucus. I think Mr. Weaver does touch on some fundamental pol political realities, which is, uh, you know, the significant amount of British Columbians live in the Lower Mainland. I think it's 55% of the vote and grows by 30,000 potential voters every single year. And to attract the attention of media, uh, business, labor, whatever it may be, this is the, the capital of British Columbia when it comes to all of that, or political capital is over there. So to widen that tent uh, and to talk about issues that, that matter to British Columbians, I know they're a party viewed as the environment party, but how does that fit in the context of job creation? How does that fit in the context of our healthcare system? Those broader conversations have to ha occur, number one. Secondly, f we forget in nine out of 10 provinces today, Gen X and millennials, those 52 and under, outnumber baby boomers. We're the outlier in that, and I think by 2021, we may have had that tipping point or very close to it already. The reality is baby boomers still vote much more than a, a younger person would. However, their base is there. Uh, and they've got to reach out to that base, particularly the ones dealing with affordability and, and many other issues in the Lower Mainland. That's where I think the greatest gain is for them. And at the same time, if they want to speak to British Columbians, they have to talk to about a green policy in its context of forestry, in context into wildlife management in the Kootenays and where I grew up in Williams Lake. And so they have to broaden their base. And it's not going to necessarily be in that bubble that is Victoria. So I think he does talk about the fundamental political realities that all political parties have to deal with. Uh, and I think that's why he said he probably would prefer somebody from the lower mainland, because I think he's seen some of the challenges the parties had, right? Yeah, I don't want to dwell on this too long, but I just couldn't let it go without saying, don't you think it's a bit of a challenge for the Green Party to think that they're going to elect someone in the lower mainland? Like which riding would mm -hmm. they even come close to electing someone? I mean, the realistic scenario would be that somebody from the lower mainland would likely have to go into Oak Bay, Gordon Head and run in that riding. Would they have to do that anyway so then you end yeah. up with with people still from the party all coming from the South Island. And so there so that's the other issue that Greens have to deal with. Are you a party that has these ideals which is we can elect somebody in Lower Mainland or do you have to tactically look at this and that may sound crass and where can we win? Mm -hmm. no. Yes they have a sort of a base in the uh, in, in Southern Vancouver Island but there was a split as well for the other two Green Party uh, uh, candidates or MLAs. They may not hold their seats next time. Sure. Don't assume they're going to be MLAs yeah. either. So there's a lot moving forward. Uh, it was a bit of a perfect storm for them last time, as a, my personal opinion. We have to work harder as BC Liberals to regain some of our vote and that trust. And I think some of our supporters stayed home. Some of them, I think, parked their vote with the Greens. And we can bring and, them back. And, and the NDP would probably say that and, to a certain and, degree as well. And, and Jez, one of those ridings, uh, Oak Bay Gordon Head, has been traditionally more liberal than NDP or Green. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the other, the uh, South Island other riding, Adam Olson's, has gone back and forth between all three parties. Mm -hmm. uh, only Cowichan is more or less NDP territory in the past. So, well, one of the issues that the Greens are obviously very concerned about, and I like to see what, looking forward, where it's going to go, the Trans Mountain Pipeline decision, uh, BC's uh, last gasp attempt at the Supreme Court was thrown out in a hurry. Uh, but what's going to happen next? Are we going to see, I mean, the Green Party obviously very unhappy. The NDP took the case to court and, and it's part of the CASA agreement with the Green Party. What's going to happen next? Are we going to have major protests and a Clackwit Sound type situation here? Because that's kind of what I'm thinking. Well, I think we have to remind ourselves the majority of British Columbians and the polling that I've seen do support it, but that those that do oppose it are, are, are very vocal particularly as you get more closer to the urban areas. I've covered this story for many years uh, here in British Columbia. I've gone all the way to Port Mac, 
and followed that pipeline route, traveled to Asia in regards to their energy security needs. I guess the question we have to ask is a couple things. Is this in the national interest, number one? And I'll let those listening to this decide if they view, view it as is. We have a tremendous amount of resources that, spent, that will eventually lead to a significant amount of taxes paid to the federal government and in, in salaries to British Columbians who do work in, in, that, in that world. The third thing we have to ask is, if we, let's say if we don't move forward with it, I'm just going to put that forward. Does that change anything in Asia? People always ask me, what's the story that, best story you've covered? Or what's the story of our time? It's not Donald Trump. It's not Brexit. Uh, it's not mega-exit, whatever you want to call it. The story of our time, my personal opinion, is the hopes, dreams, and ultimately the consumption patterns of 21st century Asia. They're driving this. Now, China has significant amount of resources put into renewables. I think that's wonderful. They still burn coal, and they still need oil, and they have significantly uh, increased their purchase of LNG. So to go through this energy, energy transition that's occurring now, what is occurring globally, that does include oil. And ours is the best in the world in regards to safety and the environment. We need to continue to drive down emissions. We continually need to challenge these companies to do so. So that's going to be there. So we walk away, with, from, away from billions of dollars that can help subsidize that energy transition that's already occurring here in British Columbia and throughout Canada as well. So I think it's going to be built, but there will be protests. I am absolutely sure of that. And that was one of the arguments that Rachel Notley of the NDP in Alberta made uh, unsuccessfully in terms of the election, but that you need to spend money now in order to transition away from an oil economy, a fossil fuel economy. And uh, China also, ironically, is the biggest investor in green technology around solar and wind and all of the sort of re renewable resource energy sources as well. So it's a, it's a really complex area. It's a, it's a challenge for every party, in my personal opinion. And the Greens, uh, sorry, the Greens have that challenge uh, where people view them that it's not a practical party in regards to the economy. The NDP's had that challenge and continues to do so. You mentioned Rachel Notley. We have our own challenges as well. There are those who feel we need to continue to invest. We believe that. But the majority of BC Liberals, the vast majority, I would argue, believe climate change is real and we have to deal with it as well. So I think we agree on that. The question is, where do we go from here? And I think that's the fundamental challenge that we have. We are in the midst of an energy transition. It's happening. People need to remember that things are happening and we're headed in the right direction. I mean, uh, Mark Carney, the uh, Bank of England uh, um, uh, governor, governor yeah, yeah. former Bank of Canada, is now moving to the United Nations. And I was just listening to his interview the other day with the BBC. He is heading over there to run work on climate change and finance. So now when a company comes to you and saying, here's our, our, uh, our, our year-end report, within that, there has to be a context of what are you doing in regards to emissions? The CEO of BlackRock, which I think mm -hmm. their valuation is $4 yeah. trillion, yeah. just yesterday in the New York Times, yeah. I was reading, has said this is going to be part of what we talk about in regards to where we invest. But he also stated it's not going to happen right away. So right now, I think the business community is also getting involved. The citizens are demanding what is an individual company doing. But at the same time, we have to look at ourselves in regards to our consumption patterns as well, right? Um, in my writing, uh, just up the street from my, my constituency office, I've got a, a house, a, a 1980s suburban house, where they put in the solar panels. And they're selling back into the grid. It's great. And I looked at that about four years ago. I have a cousin of mine who just installs these solar panels. And he said this year, being, sorry, 2019, this, the, the, the solar panels that were installed in a typical suburban house, the cost dropped down to 12500 which put it at parity with hydro. Mm -hmm. Right? So let's start looking at our buildings and do we start making some of this stuff mandatory? And if we do, what's the cost to the average consumer? In California, that's happening now. 
So the transition is occurring. The question is, how fast do we move? And I know those um, protesters are going to be out in front of that pipeline. Uh, feel it needs to be done today. It can't be done today. It's not going to happen that quickly, right? It took 80 years for oil to surpass coal as the major energy source in the world. I think we're going to move faster than that, but this is a 50, 60, 70 year race. And I hope it moves quickly, but this is what it takes for the energy transition to happen. I, I think regardless of what project you do in British Columbia, you're going to get a protest. So I'm less yeah. kind of concerned about whether or not there are going to be protests. I just assume there are going to be protests. But for me, with the Supreme Court ruling, what I'm looking at is the politics of this pipeline. Yeah. And we just went through a federal election where um, there was very little actually uh, discussion on the pipeline, interestingly, here in British Columbia. Some folks might argue some, some MPs lost their seats, but I think overall the pipeline wasn't really uh, so much an issue. But f for you, going into the next provincial election, how does this Supreme Court ruling impact provincial politics? Is, it, is the topic going to be off uh, the table? Because if all the parties, if now the Premier has lost the last tool in the toolbox to fight yeah. this in the government, where are we going with all this? I mean, I think generally, and then this is me, if you get down to the weeds, you look at rural BC, and I'm broadly generalizing because there's those in rural BC that would oppose this pipeline, but I think the majority of rural residents and those at 250 support it. Go to the suburbs, people generally support it. They do have questions and concerns as I do as well, right? And as you get closer to the site, there's probably that much more vocal opposition. But even here in the city, people generally uh, support that pipeline. But what they wanna see, in my opinion, is what are you doing to make that transition? I think they're okay with a pipeline as long as the safety issues are, are dealt with, the environment's being looked after. We have a significant amount of dollars put into uh, safety, especially out in the water, which we have. But we also wanna see programs that say, what are you doing to move forward, right? What are you doing in regards to the carbon tax? What are you doing in regards to retrofitting homes in regards to solar? Um, are there going to be discounts or at least rebates for cars, right? And right now we're going, uh, I think it's about a million dollars a month we are going, or sorry, a million dollars a week in regards to providing rebates for people driving electric cars. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with that. I don't think we necessarily should be subsidizing those buying $70,000 Teslas. But would a BC Liberal government bring in, I heard you mention about the solar panels on the roof. Is this yeah. something you guys are exploring of looking at, given the price points coming down, something that should be mandated? I think that's business? the conversation that is occurring, certainly. Uh, you know, we as we get closer to the election, our policy paper will be out. But I think the conversation on the environment has to happen. Like we have to make a fundamental transition over the next generation or two to how we use energy, right? And that's the point at the end of the day, especially as Canadians, we on per capita, we use significantly more than countries like China and India. Yes, they're much higher than we are, but at the end of the day, we have to start lowering our consumption as well. So start looking in the mirror uh, as consumers as well. You can blame politicians, you can blame big energy, but it always comes down to a consumer's consumption patterns at the now, end of the day. Now, that's a good transition point as well because we've seen the court case on Trans Mountain, but we've also seen the government pass with the full support of the Liberal Caucus and the Green Caucus, UNDRIP, yeah. the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. What impact is that gonna have on a pipeline, but just generally mining, forestry? Big There's a, a whole myriad of, of different things that can be affected by it. And what we're seeing now with the Coastal Gas Link is the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chief saying, yeah. hey, wait a minute, like we don't give consent, so that's it, it's over. But that's not what the Premier said. I think the Premier uh, has stated uh, uh, at, at this point that the pipeline should move forward. I think, uh, I think the reconciliation needs to occur in our society. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. <clears throat> I think if you have processes put in place, which generally we have, is particularly with this coastal gas situation, having worked for the LNG industry, is Shell particularly and their partners have done a good job consulting. And having been up in the, those communities, 
uh, right down to talking to First Nations communities, you know, five people, ten people, and explaining what LNG and natural gas is. Um, that was done. You wouldn't have had buy-in from 20 of 20 First Nations along that per, per, mm -hmm. if they hadn't learned. And I think the LNG industry learned from Enbridge's failure. And it's a different commodity, but we learned from it. So I think it's up to the government to provide clarity. I think UNDRIP is an aspirational um, uh, uh, target, and I think it's important. And I think it's important that we continue to work towards reconciliation. But there is a role for the provincial government to provide absolute clarity to business. That if you follow one, two, three, four, five rules, which means a business case, environmental case, safety, local benefits, all those parameters are, are, are done consciously in an honest, thoughtful manner, you should be able to move forward if you have the approvals. So this is going to be a test case in the public, uh, but somewhere along the way, a decision's gonna be, have to be made. And what I worry about is I think we're gonna get to that point of reconciliation. I think, I think First Nations communities are doing a much better job of seeing greater um, interaction and consultation, particularly with the younger generation of First Nations leaders, and they're doing amazing work. My worry is actually our international reputation. What I mean by that is we as a country have to show the world, and as a province, you can still get things done here. When I joined the BC LNG Alliance in 2014, and the LNG industry was sort of nascent starting up, to today, we are going to get an LNG project finished if everything works out by 2025. There are potentially 14 other projects in the US that will be already built by then, and that means extensions of ones that are already there. So they have zoomed past us. They will zoom past Australia and potentially even Qatar, and we are gonna get one done. I was in Mumbai in 2016 doing a, a presentation uh, for one of the largest uh, energy houses. And their head of their energy uh, house, I walked into the presentation, talked about everything we were doing, we were doing with First Nations, and business side, everything else. And he said, Mr. Johal, thank you for the presentation, well done. Uh, I just have one question. We were asked in 2011 if we wanted to buy into one of these projects. It is now 2016, nothing has moved forward. Why should we care, right? Mm -hmm. And I walked him through and, and explained because this is a new commodity for us in regards to uh, LNG industry and why we need to go through the things that we're doing. But once we're there, we're a great pace to, uh, to, to, to build and do business and it's very quick to get to Asia, particularly East Asia. A few months after that, I see Trump in Washington with Narendra Modi and uh, the, the Indian, uh, Indian oil and gas has uh, about 10% uh, ownership of the Petronas project a few mm -hmm. years ago. They were investing in another project down there. And so now Petronas has gone away, they're going to the US for that uh, natural gas. Hope there's potential for future that India would come back and purchase from us, it'd be great. But that is one, is a small example to me mm -hmm. of many uh, examples that we need to get this right and need to start moving not only on coastal gas, but on TMX, because you only get so many chances, folks, because it's Qatar, it's Australia, it's, uh, it's the US, uh, it's East Africa. We are competing against the globe. It's, it, it's, it's not good enough to say, hey, we're Canada, we're better. We believe our own publicity more than most, and that's part of our problem. And we've got, we have a natural advantage. Our, we have a cooler temperature. There's a 20% discount on in regards to, it costs less to cool down the natural gas. So we have a built-in advantage because of our cooler ambient temperature. But let's not blow that uh, in all this red tape, because it's taken a long time, and it does take a while we've got to get a few more projects passed. Uh, just uh, one short follow-up, but do you think that there's a potential in BC politics for an anti-UNDRIP party to come out in the next election? Uh, look, there's always potential for anything in British Columbia, and, <laughs> I, I, and I think there's probably going to be some who hold um, that perspective. Uh, I think if you provide clarity for these companies that they can move forward, 
I think mm-hmm. you can quell a lot of that. And I think that's an obligation that Mr. That every leader has to show that you have to say, look, we got to work together. Because look, as a journalist, I've covered protests, uh, First Nations protests for decades, literally, going back to Augustuson Lake and even prior to that. Uh, we can't continue to go on like this. Yeah. It hinders First Nations development and it hinders non-First Nations development. We're in this together, folks, so we've got to find a solution. If there's going to be people who, who, who are against it, well, so be it. I don't think they're going to succeed uh, in any meaningful way, but that's up to Premier Horgan, that's up to uh, our leader, Andrew Wilkinson, and the Green Party leader to make sure that we do come to, come to a consensus on this stuff, because we have to. Canada can't afford it, BC can't afford it. So what would an interview with Jazz Joe Hall be without a discussion on ride sharing? So, uh, I, I don't know how I got stuck with I that. Think I, I, saw, just... I think I see you every so often on your former network on Global yeah. News there talking about ride sharing. So um, I, I know you, you've got obviously your view on this, but I mean, there, there are critics who've said that, you know, the Liberals had a chance when you were in government that you mm-hmm. could have implemented ride sharing. You didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, the NDP have now been in government. We're going on, I guess, what, three years. So yeah. there's still no ride sharing as of January 2020. Um, a, are we going to get ride sharing this year? And and B, could you comment uh, briefly on what's taking so long? What what's happening behind behind the scenes? Because even the premier seems frustrated now yeah. that this hasn't happened. Well, I, I, let me go to your original, uh, your first question, which is the BC Liberals could have done. No, I wasn't uh, there. But what, here's my um, my my view of things. Uber comes in, talks to nobody, and just starts their business. That's a no no. A it speaks to a sort of the, that sort of tech bro uh, mentality that has actually hindered Uber for many, many years in regards to uh, its, its corporate uh, perception. Hence, their original founder is now gone. Uh, I think the grown-ups have taken over. Uh, but like any startup, they've ramped up and, then, and, and they've been spending freely. Uh, and I think there's been many problems along the way, right down to um, we've seen sexual assaults in some of these vehicles. We've a significant amount of dollars thrown around uh, and, and wasted, and they've had easy money coming towards them, right, in their direction. Um, so that's number one. So we had to build a framework, a policy framework in regards to moving forward. And I think we were very cautious, and uh, we built that framework, and I think that's the right framework. Where I would quibble, and I can play Monday morning quarterback because that wasn't there, I'd have just started, I would have brought in that program a year earlier. Rather than right before the last election, we could have implemented it. Mm-hmm. I think the one zone, um, I think the class five plus is the right way to go. Uh, I think helping the taxi industry build a robust app that can actually compete. Even now, you hear complaints all the time. It doesn't work. It's not reliable. I've given up. Yeah, yeah. you've given up, yeah. right? Yeah. And I, I've, I've had taxi guys come into my office many, many times. Uh, and I've always asked, how's the app? Oh, it could be better. I said, guys, we're eight years <laughs> into this debate. Do you think maybe you want to focus on that a little bit in regards to customer service? That's part of your problem. Because yeah. their business plan right now, viewed by the public, is you guys are just playing politics. This competition is coming. So let's help them get better. Um, the class four, look, let me actually backtrack a little bit. The gig economy is upon us. I get that. And I get the concerns that we're all going to be turned into folks either working for Amazon for 10 hours and Uber for five hours here and there. Uh, we already have challenges in bringing more head offices here. I get that. But keeping ride healing away isn't necessarily going to solve the bigger challenges that we have in Western civilization with, with what is work today. And that's the challenge that we have. Uh, that's a broader conversation. I think we should have an inquiry on actually, or at least strike a committee on and really talk about where we need to be. Uh, but in regards to stifling ride healing, it is going to come because I think it, no party can stop it, even if they wanted to. But I think there's, we're not going to get the Both robust... Both parties have done a pretty good job yeah. so far. I'm not, <laughs> not sure I agree with what, you on what that. I was cautious and did the right thing. I think it took a little bit of time. And I think the NDP, the class four barriers don't help. 
$500 a, a driver, I think it was in Burnaby and some of the other municipalities, that's ridiculous, yeah. right? So whatever starts, uh, it, it's just going to hinder the amount of drivers that we have. So you'll get ride hailing, and it may be great in downtown Vancouver and west side of Vancouver. I just don't know how it's going to be in Chilliwack uh, or in Tawasson or in, 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 in Port Moody. And then stepping away from that, communities like Enderby that may only have uh, transit for two days a week, one guy driving in that community for four hours one a day is very helpful yeah, for folks, yeah, right? Totally. That's where I think we, we forget. It's mm-hmm. not. I'm not worried about downtown Vancouver and they have to get dealt with. It's Enderby and those communities that I'm concerned about. So I think let's bring them in. I think we had a 50 cent per charge congestion tax because there's going to be congestion in downtown Vancouver. Yeah. And then we've got to find pickup points as well. But there's within the ride healing committee that I was on, there's we were trying to protect the industry as well in a good way. They've got to compete. And they're going to have to compete in customer service and in technology. But I can't stop and I can't help in any meaningful way somebody's paid $800,000 for a medallion. Yeah. Like, how do you save that? New York has that problem. Yeah. Uh, in LA. And they're looking at a buyout. Yeah, they're looking at a buyout. dollars buyout. Well, then, then yeah. and that's that's the problem, right? Yeah. In, in Los Angeles, uh, they're trying to help some of these guys, the taxi industry as well. New York Times did a piece yeah. the other day on that as well. You can't turn this back. Yes, Uber was turned away from downtown L- London. London's a very unique market, but what they forget is India's own ride-hailing company, Ola Cabs, which had $125 million invested uh, into it by Japan SoftBank, lost, uh, launched in Manchester, Birmingham, and central London uh, just two months ago. So if anybody asks, the empire does strike back. <laughs> now, speaking of that, uh, we're noting the time. We're just running out of time. Uh, good segue, empire strikes back. Yeah. Um, I'd like to ask you a personal question, not a political question. Uh-oh. So are you a Star Wars fan? Uh, all of our listeners and viewers want to know that. And if so, what did you think of the last movie, that uh, the last installment? That okay, uh, you know what? I'm gonna, I haven't seen the last one yet. Oh. I have not seen the last movie. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I just haven't had the time. My little guy's a huge Star Wars fan. I didn't go with him because my brother-in-law took him, uh, as a birthday gift, took him to Star Wars. But I did get Disney Plus and I watched Mandalorian. Okay. And I really like that. I don't know if you, have you seen Mandalorian? I've heard, I've watched a few episodes. Yeah. I didn't get hooked. Uh, he'll like be somebody. in a helmet next show. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And, and he won't uh, talk either. That's just going to be great. Yeah, and I get intrigued by Baby Yoda. Oh, you know? yeah, oh, yeah. Everyone's Everyone Baby loves Yoda. Baby Yoda. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to drag Daniel back because I thought what he was going to say is it couldn't be a Jazz Joe Hall interview without the flaming dumpster fire of ICBC, oh, which is yeah. actually, oh, yes. we got yeah, it that's, yeah. what, that's what your critic role is uh, as an MLA. So yeah. give us your take. And uh, when we were talking $500 million, you could uh, bail out the New York taxis. For a billion, you could probably bail out all of ICBC. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I won't get into the, the I, I, it was funny, I, I've been a critic now for three months, so it's kind of drinking from a fire hose. Um, <laughs> and look, I'll tell you a couple of things. One, the insurance industry, around North America has huge challenges. And I'll be the first to tell you that. The ICBC issue for me at its core is it's public insurance. When anything is public, there's a social contract. And that social contract is betterment uh, for the public. We will do this in the public good. We know the benefits of public health care. You won't go bankrupt because you have to go see your doctor or there's surgery required. We all agree upon that, any party. We all support public health care. If an 18-year-old is paying $6,000 a year for insurance, where's the public benefit in that? That's the fundamental question I have to ask. In the old days, Premier Bill Bennett used to have ICBC folks come in all the time, uh, just to Todd Stone prior to um, Mr. Ebrey handling ICBC. And he'd get all the actuaries come in, give them all the plans, we can do this, we can do that, we can do this. Um, And Bill Bennett would always go back to a fundamental question what would my nephew's insurance be, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think we've got to get back to that fundamental question. 
because if it's about affordability, which I think it should be, and I'm not saying uh, it's not a challenge in insurance. Of course it is. I'm not sharing we're going to, and it's, it's more expensive because of expensive cars. Um, uh, the other thing is people are litigating more as well. Yeah. But we still have to get back to that fundamental question. Yeah. What's the final bill we're handing British Columbians? So if there is a challenge in insurance, let's find a solution. If there is room for private sector involvement, let's look at it. If there's a way to fix the public system, let's look at it. In Saskatchewan, you can pick a Buick insurance system, or you can get the Cadillac version. One of them may be a tort system, one of them may not be. I'm not advocating for that. Yeah. I'm just saying, let's get a group of experts to look at it and present to the politicians and to the public and have a robust, honest, thoughtful conversation. But the, because, challenge, but, yeah, the challenge you're gonna have on that, Jazz, is you're, you've got less than what, we've got uh, 20 months or so before potentially the election going into October mm -hmm. of next year. Um, you're gonna have to build, as you said, a platform. You're gonna have to take a position for the yeah. public. And, and notwithstanding the fact that I think getting experts in the room to make recommendations would be great, where are you gonna go with it? Like you, you're, the public is gonna expect a yeah. response from you. And I think that's when that conversation, we will have that conversation, I agree with you. But tell me right now how the system is working when uh, last week we had a, a guy who started up his business, a logging truck business, he's now up to five trucks, and he's hired a 26-year-old, and it's a woman, for God's sakes, that's wonderful, we don't get enough women in trades and working in forestry, and she may drive every one of those trucks working for him, so though every one of those trucks goes up by $4,000, so that he's paying $20,000 extra in insurance, on top of an interior force industry that's already having difficulty. I'm just saying, when the system was created by Dave Baird and the NDP in the early 70s, there was a reason for it. Mm -hmm. And there will be those folks who say, look, it's, it was horrendous. I'm gonna say, it was great. And I, I, look, I have ICBC insurance like everybody else, my basic and my optional. I haven't changed that. I think I'm happy with them, yeah. but others are not. So we need to have that honest conversation. And it's a 50-year-old system, so let's look at it and say, how do we change things? How do we make them better? And if we can fix this system, let's fix it. If we can't, let's have that honest conversation and be brave enough to have that honest conversation. Yeah. Well, I think we've seen, I mean, you mentioned the possibility of uh, how much a nephew would, would pay $6,000, but we're seeing it in Alberta, which has had dramatic yeah. increases yeah. as well. And I think, you know, part of the challenge, I think, my last question is, uh, one of the things that, that David Eby, the minister responsible, the attorney general is looking at is no fault, which was considered and uh, a huge battle happened when the NDP was in power previously. No fault didn't, uh, did not happen. Is that something that you would consider if you're gonna look and start the conversation, would you look at all at no I think we have to well? look at the entire system. If we're gonna have an honest conversation, let's have yeah. a look at the entire system. So look, I think we have auto plan dealers who I think uh, provide great service and at the end of the day, they have built up a network that we as, as a public insurer don't have to do so. So you have to work with them. Mm -hmm. But God's sakes, let's look at online. If you can save 10%, mm -hmm. let's save that 10%. So I'm just saying, put everything on the table and have that honest, honest conversation. And, and I think your, your comment about private not doing so well, that you're right. And I've said that right from the start. The insurance industry is hurting across North America, around the world. Um, but I think at the same time, if this present system isn't working, I think Mr. Eby in an interview with, with a talk show host not too long ago, so I didn't get into politics to manage an insurance company. That alone and that comment, I think showed his frustration as well. So let's have that honest conversation and let's make that tough decision that has to be made in regards to moving forward, whatever that may be. Jess, so thanks for coming uh, on the show. We really do appreciate you being here. Uh, wish we had a bit more time. To, we're going to expand it to an hour because yeah, it was very interesting. <laughs> it was a fascinating, <laughs> fascinating discussion. So uh, Jess Johal, ICBC critic, a member of the BC Liberal Caucus and MLA for uh, Richmond, Queensboro. Thanks so much for coming on the show. No, thank you so much for having me. And also thank you uh, to sort of, you know, really helping us talk amongst each other about this. And it's, it's a bit more of a longer, thoughtful conversation, which I think BC politics requires. So I'm glad to see you guys are on the scene. 
And I think this is only going to help us uh, over the long term make the right decision as well. Thank so you. glad to have you guys on the political scene as well. Thanks for coming up. Thanks. Welcome back to BC Poly Talk. Uh, that was a fascinating interview we just did with uh, Jazz Johal. And, and now it's time for our takeaway. Uh, what's the one takeaway we uh, have from that interview with Jazz? And uh, Bill, what about you? What was your big takeaway from that interview with Jazz Johal? Well, I think what we really talked about quite a bit was the end of the fossil fuel economy and the transition, difficult as it will be, away from oil and natural gas and, uh, and coal and all the other forms and into renewable energy. And one of the challenges that, as Jazz said, every party's going to have is how do you transition and how do you deal with all the difficult adjustments in a period where we've got a lot of pressure on for climate change action. We've got people who want to shut down pipelines, stop exporting our fossil fuels, uh, and yet we can't do that. It's going to take decades to do that. And for me, my takeaway was really on ICBC. I mean, he's the critic for ICBC and the fact that he said everything is on the table. I think he talked about no-fault insurance. He talked about doing online renewals, which will have a, a potentially a huge impact if that policy was implemented. Uh, for me, the takeaway was the fact that anything is possible when it comes to ICBC under a new BC Liberal government. So that, for me, was uh, really my takeaway. I totally agree. And remember, you can find everything at our website, bcpolytalk.ca. You can also chase us down on Spotify and iTunes for podcasts. You can find us on Vimeo. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook and find links there. You can go to YouTube and see the show. Thanks so much for listening to BC Polytalk.